Good morning. We're in week two of Jonah, and how many of you guys read the book of Jonah last week? You had homework to do? Anybody? Oh, man. Uh, a few of you. Okay, well, we're, we're going to get halfway through the book by the end of this morning, so you got one more week, one more week to finish your homework, uh, read the book, and uh, I have a visceral reaction. PTSD when I hear the word homework. I was uh, never a good student, so I, I, don't, I don't judge you, but uh, I'm imploring you. You should, you should read the book of Jonah this week. Uh, so we're on week two, looking at chapter two. Last week, uh, Willie uh, kicked us off with uh, week one, and I was trying to convince Willie. I said, you know what would be a really, really great talk, a really great title for your talk is Free Willie. <laughs> Come on, this is, this is low-hanging fruit here. You, like, you gotta, you gotta use that title, and, uh, but he didn't think that was worth it, so, uh, um, I almost titled mine Free Willie, but, uh, but I, I didn't. Um, anyways, we're looking at, uh, Jonah chapter two, but just a really quick recap. Jonah's called by God to bring a prophetic word against the Ninevites, uh, which is a city, the capital city of Assyria. Assyria was the emerging world power at the time. It was a violent and ruthless and imperialistic nation, and it was a clear and present danger to the Israelite people, uh, to the existence of Jonah's people. God calls him to go and minister to the capital city of Assyria, go minister to the capital city of his enemies. And Jonah is freaking out. And uh, sometimes we don't understand this, but when you think of who are your enemies personally, who are your enemies uh, maybe as, as, a, as a country, when you think about what's happening around the world, who are your enemies? Uh, and you could, you could probably figure out pretty quickly who is on the other side of where you are, where you think you are, where you would like to be. Uh, and this is like God saying, go to those people that you're afraid of. Go to those people that uh, are threatening your very existence. I want you to go and minister to them and bring a prophetic word to them. So Jonah is called to go to enemy territory. And he doesn't want to do it. And so Jonah runs away from God. Uh, and he runs away, and he's running away not just from God, but from his calling, from what God has called him to do. And so he finds himself on this boat trying to get away from God, and there's a big storm, as we read last week, and uh, God is preventing Jonah from running away. He's trying to hold Jonah and hold Jonah to account on what God has called him to do. And there's the storm, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And they, uh, through a series of events, they realize, you know, Jonah is the reason that this is happening. And so they throw Jonah overboard. And when they throw Jonah overboard, the storm stops. And so that's kind of where we pick up the story this week. And so we're moving into Act 2 of this drama of Jonah. And it actually begins at the last verse of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Everybody say, belly of the fish. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then from inside the fish, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head. To the roots, the mountains, I sank down. 
The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So act two of Jonah, chapter two of Jonah, is this moment where Jonah is swallowed by a fish. And this is what has made this story so famous uh, for all of history. Uh, It's captured the imagination of people throughout history because of how spectacular it is. Jonah runs away from God. He gets swallowed by this fish. And maybe maybe many people think this is a a myth or a parable of sorts. Uh, But I found it interesting to know that in in 1891, actually, in February of 1891, uh, there was some hunters that were on a ship hunting in the Falk Islands and South Atlanta. And while they were pursuing this sperm whale, one of the two boats that were going were capsized and two of the people on the boat were in, were flung into the sea. Um, the hunters that were left in the other boat actually went on to kill the whale, but they were mourning the loss of their fellow fishermen. Uh, and so the, the, group, the crew was mourning their loss, but they're also kind of dealing with the whale that they had caught, and they worked until midnight uh, dealing with that whale. Um, and then the next morning, they, they were cutting up the whale open, and they hoisted, hoisted the whale's stomach up. And to their surprise, they saw something moving in the stomach of the whale. And their friend that was thrown into the water, and the other boat was actually swallowed by a whale and was inside the whale's stomach. So they cut the stomach open, uh, and this man, James Bartley was his name, was found in there unconscious, and he was bathed in seawater, uh, and he was... Uh, but he came to, and he was obviously mentally confused and disturbed. Uh, and so four weeks, he actually spent recovering, and he was able to then recount his experiences. And for the rest of his life, he carried with him the, the scars of that experience. He had a bleached white face uh, from the whale's gastric acids that were inside the stomach. But he lived to survive and tell the story. This is, uh, happened in modern history. Uh, and so it is possible. Jonah, thrown into the sea, runs from God and finds himself in the belly of a whale. But there's two things that are happening here, and, and it's, I think it's important that we differentiate between two things that are happening. Jonah is first thrown into the sea, and then he finds himself in the belly of the whale. He is thrown into the sea, the heart of the sea, and then finds himself in the belly of the whale. Uh, And so I want to talk about the sea for a second. And Willie mentioned this last week, but just to reiterate, the sea had certain understanding, connotations, beliefs around the sea at that time in history. And I don't know if, is anybody here scared of water? A few people. Uh, okay, my, my, my wife doesn't love it when I talk about her on stage, but she actually has a phobia, uh, not of water, but of seeing underwater. When you can see things underwater, and like when, you, when you're on the lake and you can kind of see through and see what's under the lake and see uh, the ground underneath, uh, she freaks out. So like when we're watching TV uh, and there's an underwater scene, uh, that is something that she has a really hard time watching. Her idea of a horror flick is watching Avatar 2. Uh, <laughs> That would be terrifying for her, all these underwater seas. Uh, And so some people have phobias of actually being in water, being underwater, maybe from experiences. Uh, But that is nothing. 
nothing compared to the phobia and the fear that people at this time in history would have had around water because water to them, and they didn't think this metaphorically, they thought this literally, water to them was the place of chaos. It was the place of evil. It was the place, uh, you know, they, they viewed the world in such a way that the lower you go, the more evil it was. The realm of the dead was underneath the earth. When you go into the water, that's the deepest uh, in their known world, the deepest that a human being could go. And the deeper you got, the more evil it got, the more chaotic it got. Uh, and the waters were uncontrollable and they were chaotic. Uh, they were unpredictable. And so uh, in their polytheistic worldview, where there was many gods, uh, they viewed this place as, as the scary place of the gods that they didn't understand, the scary place of chaos, of evil. Uh, and so there was all these things that were associated with their understanding of the water. So Jonah gets thrown into the water, into the chaos, into the evil, into the unknown. And he gets thrown in, and, he, and if you remember, he was willing to even go there because he thought he deserved it. I'm the one running for God. I'm the one causing this to happen. Just throw me into the evil water. Throw me into chaos. I don't deserve to live. This, is, this was Jonah's understanding of what was about to happen to him. So he gets thrown into the chaos. And as he's in the chaos, as he's in the heart of the sea, so this is Jonah's prayer here. It gives you kind of an understanding of his understanding of water. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounding me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And so Jonah is in this place of chaos, in this place of where he thought evil dwelt, in this place of having no way out. And so we kind of pick up the story there, and then we realize as the story begins, not only was Jonah in the heart of the sea, it says, but then he was swallowed by a fish. And this fish, it says, was provided by God. That's an interesting word, right? That God provided a fish. Oh, thanks, God. Got swallowed by a fish. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, Which... It, it just causes me to ponder, and I think it, it makes us ponder a timeless question that every believer in God wrestles with at some point. Am I where I find myself because of what God is doing? Because of what other people have done? Because of what I have done? Is God causing this to happen? Has God swallowed me in this fish because of, is this a consequence for what I have done? Am I here because of what I've done or what God's done or what the people that threw me overboard. Like, so was, it, was this happening because God did it? Was this happening because Jonah did it? Was this happening because the guys on the ship took Jonah and threw them into the water? Which one was it? Why is this happening? This is, if you are a, somebody who has faith in God, you will find yourself asking this type of question all the time when you find yourself in the belly of a fish. Why am I here? Who is responsible? Was it God? Was it me? Was it somebody else? And often, the answer probably is yes on some level to all of those things. But I found that question not to be a very helpful question. Did God cause this to happen? I mean, it's an interesting question. 
Looking back on the story of Jonah, we can see how he, he understood it in retrospect. But when you're in the moment, when you're in the belly of the fish and you're saying, is, God, is this God's judgment? Is, is God causing this to happen? Uh, I don't find that a very helpful question. I think a better question, a more fruitful question, is given where I am, how is God asking me to respond? Given where I am, how is, ask, how is God asking me to respond? I find myself in the belly of the fish. And we can spend our time asking questions about who's responsible, how did I get here, but Jonah will see moves from this place of asking the question, how should I respond? So often in our lives, we find ourselves in the heart of the sea, in places of chaos, where we feel like evil surrounds us, where we're fighting for our lives where we find ourselves in a place that we didn't want to be or plan to be. That heart of the sea moment is part of the normative human experience. But I think it's different than the belly of the fish experience. I think the belly of the fish experience is this point that we get to in our lives where we almost stop fighting. We can't fight anymore. We're, we're overwhelmed. We're not, we're not trying to swim. We don't think there's any lifelines coming. And we're in the belly of the whale and we start to ask different types of questions. We've stopped fighting for our lives and we've almost surrendered our lives to some degree and we're in this bit of a helpless state. Have you ever found yourself in the belly of a fish, in the belly of a whale? Where you fought and you're fighting and you're trying to manipulate your situation and change it and for everything that you can do, it's not working. And then you finally get to this point of just saying like, it's hopeless. I've had belly of a whale type of experiences throughout my life. Um, I've shared, I share this one in hearing God class often, but I remember years and years ago, um, and these ones are easy to tell because they're years and years ago. I have more recent ones, but <laughs> uh, years and years ago, uh, when I was first starting at SunWest and I was a, uh, I was a youth intern and I was working in, in senior high youth and I had been here working for a couple of years uh, and I thought it was time for me to be promoted. Uh, I thought I'd done a really, really good job. Uh, we were, as a church, looking to hire a youth pastor, and I was like, I'm right here. Uh, and so Willie, who spoke last week, some of you don't know Willie, but Willie was my boss at the time. And so I was like, hello, I'm right here. Uh, and Willie's like, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing, but I just don't think, I don't think this is your time. I'm like, oh, like I was, I was chewing. I'm like, I'm, I've been working my butt off two years. Uh, this is uh, this should be my job, uh, and it felt unjust, and I remember going into Willie's office, and I remember, I remember cursing at Willie. I don't know if you've ever cursed at your boss, and I don't know if you've ever had a boss that's the lead pastor of a church, uh, but you put, you put those things together, and you go in, and you start dropping bombs and swearing at them. Uh, you know, I probably should have been fired, but, uh, you know, Willie, to his credit, just kind of sat there and was like, all right. Um, so I was just, I was upset, um, and so what I started to do uh, is, I, you know, this is like, I'm, this is, I'm in the, the sea kind of moment. I'm thrown to the sea and I'm fighting for my life and I'm trying to, you know, mark out my, my place in the world. And, and so I'm like, well, if they don't appreciate me here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go work somewhere else. Uh, and so, and some of you guys know Brad Hubert, right? Because Brad's, 
Brad's been a speaker here uh, often. He comes a couple times a year. And so Brad was pastoring at a different church at the city. And I was like, I'm going to work for Brad instead. You know, if Willie doesn't want me, maybe Brad wants me. Uh, and they were looking for a youth pastor, sent in my application. I did a couple of phone calls. Uh, and so I'm, I'm playing SunWest Field. I'm playing uh, the church that Brad was at. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm going to make my way through this. Um, and uh, so th- this is going on. And then I had a dream. Uh, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's happened to me a couple times in my life. But I'm, I'm fighting. I'm in the sea. I'm in the chaos. And I, and I had this dream. And in this dream, uh, you know, I was running a camping trip for our youth ministry. And, uh, and I remember all the youth leaders that I was running the camping trip with decided that they were going to go home early. Uh, and every one of them was driving away and going home early. And I was the only one left. And I thought, this isn't fair. Like, this, this isn't right. This isn't just. Uh, I should leave too. This injustice, I should, leave, I should leave as well. And so I'm like, I'm leaving these kids behind. And I went and I left them too, like a good responsible youth. Maybe that's why I wasn't getting the job. Uh, I said, <laughs> I'm going to go too. So I started running. Uh, I don't know why I didn't have a vehicle. Um, not responsible enough, I guess. But I didn't have a vehicle in my dream. And I start running away. And I'm running down this dirt road. And this is flat dirt road. And as I'm running, it becomes mountainous. Uh, and then the sun sets and it becomes dark. And then I'm like, you know, climbing up this mountain. And as I'm climbing up this mountain, I could see this lion that was uh, coming over the, over the crest of the mountain. And he's looking at me. Right? And then... Uh, you know, it's very frightful in my dream. And then he pounces on me and attacks me. And in that moment, I wake up and I hear First Peter 5 as I wake up. I go and I read First Peter 5. Uh, and then First Peter 5 is, basically says, uh, you young men submit to your elders. Because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's like, oh, so I walk into Willie's office, and, uh, and I apologize. I say, I'm sorry, this is what happened. Uh, I say, I've actually been looking elsewhere for a job. And he says, I know. <laughs> He's like, Brad told me. I'm like, oh, that guy. <laughs> and then I went from being in the sea to being in the belly of the fish. Just there given up, not in control, and then I started asking a different question. Not why am I here, who's to blame, but how am I going to respond? And I decided in that moment in time that I was going to honor those who were in authority over me, I was going to honor God, I was going to be faithful with whatever he had given me, and I was going to trust God through it all. Uh, And obviously it, it worked out on some level, Maybe you think, I should have left. But I, it worked out on some level. But that's, that's the belly of the fish experience. Where you move from who am I to blame, whose fault is this, to I'm not asking that question anymore. I just, I'm now asking the question, how am I going to respond in this place of helplessness? And from inside the fish, this is what it says, Jonah chapter 2, from inside the fish, Jonah starts to pray to God. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about the value of pray first, not pray last, but pray first. But Jonah prays last. And it's how I often work too. When I had that belly of the fish experience, and even to this day, I start to pray in those moments in ways that I don't pray before those moments happen. 
And so Jonah finally, after his wrestling for his life, after trying to run away from God, finds himself inside the fish, and finally he starts to pray. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks, to, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I think often for many of us, it's only when things get so painful and so uncomfortable and we're so helpless that we begin to pray and look to God in a different type of way. So Jonah finally responds by praying. And what does God do? It says, God answered him. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. It says, from the realm of the dead, I called for help and God listened to my cry. God answered Jonah. God was patient with Jonah. Jonah was running. Jonah was on the belly of the whale. Jonah waited way too long to pray and turn his life around and look to God. But when, as soon as Jonah turned around, God was there. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. So he's in the the sea. He's in the realm of the dead. The, the, the word in Hebrew here is the word Sheol, which is often translated as hell in, transla- in other translations. It's the same word is the same idea as the Greek word Hades. It's, it's the place where the dead reside. Jonah, in some form, is in hell. He's helpless. But even there, God listens to his prayer. And it reminds me of Romans 8 when Paul is saying, nothing can separate us from the love of cross, from the love of Christ. Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all of these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present or the future, any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the experience that Jonah has when he thinks he's in hell, when he thinks he's gone too far, when he thinks his story can't be redeemed, he cries out to God and God listens and God responds. And so we learn a very important truth in the story of Jonah that we see that is true about God throughout history is that God doesn't run away from runaways. Jonah runs away. He runs as hard as he can. He fights God as much as he can. And the moment that Jonah turns around, God is still there. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been running. You've been thrown into the sea. You've been fighting for your life. You've been rejecting God. You're thinking, if, if, if you only knew, Matt, what I had done or what I'm running from, you would understand. But I'm telling you that it doesn't matter what you've done, that God is still there. And the moment that you turn, no matter how far you think you've ran, Jonah is praying from hell. He's praying from Sheol, from the realm of the dead. And the moment he turns around, God is there and listens. And then Jonah says this, or he thinks this. I'm not sure how much he could speak in the belly of a whale, but he's, he's thinking this. Uh, you know, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And here's the thing. The heart of the sea, when you're fighting in the heart of the sea, it's going to challenge your idols. 
And what are idols? Idols are those things that we look to as lifelines, those things that we look to to save us, to, to give us security, to give us comfort. And so you can just, you know, picture this metaphor that, you know, Jonah's in this chaos of the sea and he's looking, he's looking for a lifeline. He's looking for something to hang on to. And that's a picture of what an idol is, the things that we look to to save us to some degree. Things that should be secondary things that become ultimate things. You know, idols typically revolve around, you know, three ideas, sex, money, power. We can make idols out of, really manufacture them out of anything. Religion can be an idol. Career can be an idol. We can actually elevate our own family to be idols when we look to family members to give us a sense of security and safety and comfort, and they, we look to them to be our lifeline. We can, look to, for, we can look at our spouse as an idol. As important as those relationships are, they are not God, and when we look to those things to give what only God can give us, those things become idols. And so what Jonah is saying is that those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. So remember, God doesn't run away from runaways, but it doesn't mean that we can't turn away from God. This, the word in Hebrew that is describing God's love is the word chesed. Can you guys say that? Chesed? Give it like a, like a, you gotta spit something out. Um, chesed is covenant love, unconditional love, permanent love. It's often translated in our Bibles as loving kindness, but it, it's, it's far bigger and broader than that. It is the covenant love of God, the permanent love of God, the love of God that doesn't give up on you, the love of God that never gives up on me. And so what Jonah is saying is that those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's chesed, his Loving kindness, his covenant love, his everlasting love, his permanent love for them. So how can you lose permanent, unconditional covenant love? You can't. But you can reject it. And so Jonah says something profound here is that when we cling to something other than God to save us, we stop clinging to God. We only have one set of hands. And actually to hang, to hang on to God, we have to let go of what we look to for salvation, for security, for comfort. And often, as C.S. Lewis said, it is only in those places where we get desperate, where our pain gets loud, where things get really uncomfortable, after we fought in the heart of the sea and we find ourselves in the belly of the fish, that we ultimately turn to God because we're helpless. I wish it, I wish it wasn't that way, but that's often how we work. And then, so, then Jonah says, I, sh- but I, I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And this, my friends, is the message of the Bible from beginning to the end that salvation comes from the Lord. This is what we see over and over again in some form. And Jonah is saying, cling to the Lord, let go of your idols. And if you're in the belly of the fish, it's actually a good place to be because you're forced to let go of your idols because you're not, you don't have control anymore and you feel helpless. And maybe this is the moment that God has brought you to so that you can cling to him. And as Jonah does that, as he prays, salvation comes of the Lord. As he lets go of these idols, as he stops running from God, as he stops pointing the fingers and blaming people, and he, in his helplessness in the belly of the fish, he acknowledges that salvation comes from the Lord. And in this moment, the Lord commanded the fish and had vomited Jonah onto the dry land. And we see the salvation of Jonah and the grace of God.
and grace. The story of Jonah is a story about grace. And we're going to talk about the, uh, the irony within that story next week because uh, God has grace for Jonah's enemies. God has grace for Jonah. They respond differently to God's grace. But this is, the whole thing is a story about grace. And grace is a completely undeserved gift from a completely unobligated giver. If we want to understand what grace is at its heart, this is, the, this is the idea of grace, a completely undeserved gift from a completely unobligated giver. Now, let me expand what I mean by that. So imagine if you're, a, if you're a parent of a very disobedient, rebellious, ungrateful, irresponsible teenage child. Um, to be clear, I'm not using an example of my own children, but imagine you were. What do you do with that child? Do you just get rid of them? Do you send them away? No, you don't. You help them. You try and help them, as frustrating as it is. Why? Because you're obligated. So even though you might be gracious to them, that's still not even a clear picture of grace because as a parent, you have a legal and moral obligation to your kids no matter how terrible they might be. You're not, you're, you, don't, you don't ever stop being a parent. And so you can be gracious, you can be loving, but that still isn't a complete picture of what grace actually is. Let's use another example, a second example. Let's say you're in a SunWest group, and your group leader is amazing, and you think they're great. And so, and so you and the other group members, you get together and you say, you know, we're going to give our SunWest group leader a present, um, and, and you pool this money together, uh, and, and you get them a present at the end of the semester. By the way, your group leaders told me to tell you this. Uh, you, and you give them this gift as a way of saying thank you, and you weren't obligated to give that gift. But is this even a picture of grace? It's not, because on some level they deserve it. They deserve that because of what they have done. And so you're not obligated to do it, but you choose to do it because they deserve it. So now get this grace is a completely undeserved gift from a completely unobligated giver. And there are some people who have so low of a view of their sin that they can't actually understand and grasp grace. They have too low of a view of their sin. It means that they don't think they're really that bad. They're, the, they're not that sinful. They're not as sinful as some other people. They say, hey, I've done pretty well in my life. I'm a pretty good person. Uh, and even if I'm not that great, I, I know that I'm better than those people. Uh, and they don't understand grace because they don't think they're as much in need of grace as other people who are worse than them. It's interesting because I hear this kind of thinking when people talk about moral failure. Right, so often we'll hear about leaders um, you know, who have disqualified themselves from leadership because they had a moral failure. And we all know what kinds of things that's describing when we say moral failure. But let's step back a second. Aren't we all moral failures? Aren't we all moral failures? Hasn't every one of us had a moral failure? And when we use that term, that person had a moral failure, or, or somebody uh, steps down from a position, they say, don't worry, I'm not leaving because of a moral failure. Uh, we're talking about a certain type of mentality that says, there's some sins that are moral failures, and other sins that are just, you know, they don't disqualify us. Now, I understand sociology, all that, all that stuff, but what I'm making is a theological point here, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As soon as we start to think, I am not as much in need of grace as that person. 
I am not as much of a moral failure as that person. We will start, we will, we'll start to actually lose the experience of grace that God wants to give us because grace is a completely undeserved gift. There's a second category of people, people that have, not that have too low of a view of sin. They know that they're failures, but they have too low of a view of God's mercy. They don't believe that God's mercy is powerful enough to save them and deal with the mess that they're in. So they haven't received God's grace either. They say, I ought not to be in this condition. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. I deserve, this is where Jonah was at. I deserve the sea. I deserve to die. I don't want, you know, God don't help me. I don't deserve your help. And some people reject God's view of grace, God's grace, because their view of grace is that God's grace is not enough to cover my sin. Those are also people that disqualify themselves from actually understanding and embracing the grace of God. And then there's people who not only see their evil and their sin and understand that they've been a moral failure and that they're undeserving of God's grace, but they also have come to see through Scripture, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that God's grace and God's love is even bigger and more wonderful than I can even imagine, and it covers even my sin. That picture is grace from, an uncom- from a completely unobligated giver to someone who un- is undeserving of that grace. And the characteristic of someone that understands grace in this way, the characteristic is humility. And this, I believe, is what will determine the outcome of your belly of the fish experience. Whether you'll choose a posture of humility, a posture of surrender, a posture of saying, I'm done doing this my way, God, do it your way. A heart of repentance. We could spend our time in the heart of the sea, fighting for a life, looking for lifelines, clinging to idols, pointing our fingers at people, blaming other people or God or ourselves for why we're there. Or we can move into the belly of the fish space where we say, we're, I'm completely helpless, God, without your grace. I'm completely dependent on you saving me. And in the moment that Jonah does this, he's delivered, he's saved. He's, he, the fish spits him out onto dry land. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus, you know, was doing his thing. He was, he was doing all these miracles, and, uh, and there's these self-righteous religious leaders that didn't think they needed the grace of God. They were suspect of Jesus. They, they were superior to Jesus in their own minds. Um, and because of that, they were forfeiting the grace that Jesus would have offered them. And so they were demanding of Jesus. They said, you know, prove yourself to us. Show us a sign. And Jesus responded to them and said, I'm not going to show you any sign, but the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says in his ministry that the cross, his death and resurrection is the sign of Jonah. His death and resurrection is the hope of the world. In some ways, Jesus is saying that we are all Jonah. We've all found ourselves in the sea because of our own sin. But Jesus says that he's the perfect Jonah, that he, he goes into the depths of the water. He goes into the belly of the fish, not because he deserves it, because he doesn't deserve it. He lived the perfect life. He goes there on our behalf, and he shows us the sign of Jonah, and he comes out three days later, later through his death and resurrection so that anybody... 
even if you're in the depths of Sheol, in the depths of hell, that anybody can reach out to God and he will save them because he has done it himself. Jesus was thrown into the sea, the judgment, the consequences of sin, of pain, of evil, of suffering. But unlike Jonah, those weren't the results of his own sin. They were the result of our sin. And Jesus says that anybody who comes to me, anybody who turns their life to me, anyone who believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to give you a sign, and it's going to be the sign of Jonah. And so the truth is, if you are in Christ, when you think that you've been buried, you've been planted. Everything that you think is burying you in your past, present, future, because of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done, everything in our life that we think is burying us is actually an opportunity for God to birth new life. When you think you've been buried, you've been planted. Because of Jesus, every type of death and hopeless situation has the potentiality of resurrection. Every burial is a planting for something fruitful in your life. When I talked about my experience years ago here, that experience transformed my life because of how I chose to respond to that. As I said earlier, it's, been, it's easier to go back in time and to tell stories of the belly of the fish. Uh, I've had more recent Stories like that. When you've been in some place, I've been in SunWest for 20 years, and so when you've been in the same community for a long time, it's hard to tell recent examples uh, because I'm a part of a community here. But our church went through a very difficult time five or so years ago. Uh, And for a lot of reasons that I can't go into on this platform, that was a belly of the fish experience for me. And another time in my life when I was looking, I was blaming, I was pointing the finger at God, at other people. I was one, looking in the mirror at myself. Um, there's things that I did that in that time that I probably should have done differently. But I eventually found myself in that belly of the fish again where I said, I can't do anything. And I had to surrender myself to God. I had to trust that God was God and I wasn't. And I had to live in a certain type of way and trust that God was going to deliver me and do what he wanted through me and in our church, something for his glory and our joy. Those belly of the fish moments in my life are the worst moments in my life. Those are moments that I look back and I'm like, I never want to live through those things again. But if I were to tell you the moments that have transformed my life the most, I would turn to those moments. Because God uses those helpless places to transform us, to sanctify us, to rescue us, to save us. And sometimes it's not till we get helpless and we throw up our arms and we say, I can't do anything, that God shows up. And so what about you? What about us? I hope that we don't have to wait to get to the belly of the whale till we have that surrendered posture. I'm a stubborn person. I think I often have to find myself in that place. But God's desire for us is that we live in this constant state of humility, of surrender, of dependency. And whether you've been running from God for a long time or maybe you find yourself in the heart of the sea or in the belly of the fish this morning, No matter how far you've ran, in a moment you can turn and God is there. And I can tell you in my own life that he's been faithful. Would you stand with me as we respond? And perhaps you've never made that decision in your life to turn your life over to God. 
Uh, you can do that this morning. Uh, you can do that for the first time. Uh, maybe like Jonah, you've done that in the past, but you find yourself running again. And, and you just need to realize again that I've got to surrender to God again. It's not God that's changed. He's still there. He's still waiting. No matter how far you've gone, you turn around in a moment and he's there. So as we sing this next song about the grace of God, uh, I pray that you would see yourself as an undeserving recipient of grace. That doesn't mean you're unworthy. You're worthy. That's why Jesus died and was resurrected. He loves you. He thinks you're amazing, but you're in need of saving. So we would, as we sing the song of grace, would we see ourselves as an undeser- undeserving recipient of grace by an unobligated giver? And in Jesus, through his death and resurrection, came to rescue us, to transform us, so that he could rewrite our story like he wrote, rewrote Jonah's story and my story. So, Father, we thank you that you love us. Jesus, we thank you for the sign of Jonah that you literally went to hell and back, to the heart of the fish for us that you went through your death and resurrection and that we can look to you with confidence saying that you have conquered death itself. You have conquered hell itself. And Lord, if we're in you, if we give our lives to you, there is nothing in all of this earth that we need to be afraid of. There's nothing that we have ever done that is too far outside of the grasp of your grace. Lord, may we recognize our own sin, our own moral failure, but may we also recognize the extreme depths of your love and grace that reaches to us in the depths of our seas and the depths of the fish that you are there the moment we turn to you and Lord we turn to you again and we say thank you in Jesus name Amen So when I used to do youth ministry, we had this thing called uh, wake up and smell the megaphone. And so what we would do at the beginning of every youth season, we would get parents to sign up their kids uh, that, uh, you know, for this event that would happen, and they wouldn't know what week it would be, but we would show up uh, unknown to them at one ungodly hour in the morning, usually about 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., depending on what time the kid wakes up, uh, with video cameras, uh, a megaphone, and often other props, and we would bring, come in, and, uh, and we would videotape it all, and we'd yell, we'd yell in their ear with a megaphone, we have a small megaphone! Uh, and then we'd get it all on tape, and then we would show it at youth every week. Uh, so every week was like, who's it going to be this week? Uh, we even got Willie Reimer one time, I, we did it. Uh, uh, Calvin Block, I saw Calvin here. Cal, we got you one time, right? Uh, their wives signed them up, so that was a good time. Uh, anyways, I, as I think about that, that phrase of pain is a megaphone, and I think we can go through life comfortably in our slumber, in our sleep, when everything's going really, really well, and then inevitably, and it might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but at some point in our life, we hit the sea moment of chaos. And I believe that if we don't learn how to walk in a constant posture of humility and dependence on God, we will wait till moments of complete chaos till we turn to him. And I pray that that's not the case. Uh, you can turn to God at any moment, but I know that some of you in, the, in, your, in this room, you're going to walk out of here uh, and you're going to think, yeah, that was a good sermon. Uh, but someday... Some week, some year down the road, 
I want you to remember Jonah. No matter how far he went, in the depths of the sea, in the depths of hell, he turned to God and God was there in a moment. My prayer is that we would do that when we don't have to. But my encouragement for you when that point comes in your life and you're woken up from your slumber and pain is that megaphone, that discomfort is that megaphone, that you would release those idols and the things you depend on and in your state of helplessness that you would turn to God and I believe that you will find him faithful and gracious and he won't be far away. Uh, Our prayer teams are available after the service. We'd love to pray for you. If there's anything you want prayer for, if you want to take that step of faith, cross that line of faith, and, and put your faith and trust in Jesus. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, maybe you want to, maybe you're coming back and you've been running like Jonah and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. If there's anything else, we would love to pray for you. Um, but let's pray together. Uh, one more time before you leave, Father, we just thank you again for what we just sang about. We thank you for the picture of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep because the one was running away and you chased that sheep down. And Lord, you were giving us a picture of what you were like. Lord, some of us are running. Some of us are sleeping. But your reckless covenant love doesn't give up. Lord, we are forever grateful. Lord, we thank you for the undeserved gift of grace. We thank you for your everlasting kindness. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, would you show us the idols in our lives that we cling to for help? And may we learn, Lord, to let those things go, as good as those things might be, that you might be the very source of our identity and our purpose. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, And thanks for coming. Uh, Have a great week.